gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this first FudsOnFilm.com podcast, which, as some of you have hopefully followed us over, was born from the OneLiner.com. I am Scott Morris, and with me, Craig Eastman. Get in. And Drew Davendale. Hello. Yeah, so as I mentioned, we previously ran for 122 episodes a podcast called uh, The One Liner, where we expounded our opinions on some recent films. As it happens with life getting in the way, we can't really talk about modern films with such a frequency as we would like before. So not, not within a time frame of any relevance to the listener, yes. probably. So we decided to move to perhaps give a bit more considered depth, uh, a bit more in-depth opinion on some older films. So we're going to undertake this as a series of themed podcasts where we will be talking about some of our favourite films, some interesting through lines through film history, various topics like that that occur to us. But hopefully we'll give you something new to think about as well as talking about films that you already love. We hope that this will become your primary source for considered opinion on cinema from a bunch of fuds. Uh, we, <laughs> <laughs> he, has our, he has our blessing <laughs> uh, for calling us that. Self-deprecating or true, um, only you shall find out if you listen. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As I said, I hope that you, some of you have followed us over from theoneliner.com, but if you haven't, we thought we might want to introduce ourselves with giving you a taste of some of our favourite films, just so we get a bit of an idea of what we're up to cinema-wise, what we like, what we dislike, and basically just give you a bit of an insight into the kind of th- things that we will be talking about. Yeah, and sort of a, a baseline of our tastes, so you can judge what we say in future episodes against that. Yeah, give you an idea of where we stand. Exactly. So we each picked our top five films, and now in no just, order, in no in order, no order whatsoever. And we're just going to sit and talk through them now. I must admit, perhaps I cheated somewhat in my picks. They're more indicative of my general taste and sort of the best films in particular. We'll come on to that as we go through. I take yeah, it. and I'm sure uh, for you guys as much for myself as well. There are. Do you know what? I could probably give you. There are some of these films that I had to kind of toss a coin with other films for. Exactly. I could probably have given you three of my five films could have been something entirely differently. Uh, entirely different, rather. Yeah, um, I could have picked five from 15 Yeah, yeah too exactly. much difficulty. Yeah, exactly. I wound up taking a slightly different approach when I, I started to do a short list for this just on things I owned and I got up to 86, which <laughs> defeats the, pur- the purpose and the point of you a short list. You were overthinking that just a tad, <laughs> weren't you? Yeah, So, and, and to be honest, all those 86 films I could have picked in some order as being equally valid uh, as part <laughs> of this we're, list. We're, we're so. going to break you in gently with a, a gradually increasing <laughs> runtime before we get to the podcast where he gives you all 86 <laughs> films on his list. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'll start with the first one that was on this list, and it is Citizen Kane. Oh, how predictable! Exactly, it is predictable. You're not going to win any awards for originality <laughs> talking about your favourite film. But the being Citizen Kane, why? Why Citizen Kane then, Scott? Well, I think the thing you have to think about Citizen Kane is that, regardless of everything that's gone before and all the history baggage that it has, it is, it is essentially a really great story. And that is more or less why it's in here. Now, saying you like Citizen Kane, as I say, not controversial, because basically what you're saying is you like modern cinema. Yes. Because it is clearly the most influential film I think there's been ever. Uh, since Probably since the Lumineer brothers started th- filming Trains and having come to the audience. But, I mean, the, it, so much of it has echoed throughout everything that we see in films these days. So I don't want to get into that too much. It is the story uh, from Orson Welles of a Charles Foster Kane a newspaper magnet who starts off as a rich playboy, starts running a newspaper business, and it's basically charting his life through a course of things that must have been, would have been groundbreaking at the time, non-linear narratives, use of flashback, beautifully shot, lots of things like that, things you can see echoing all the way throughout history, uh, 
film through to today. You can't separate Citizen Kane from that. It does have that as a basis. But I think what is often lost in the shuffle is that it is a brilliant film with a fantastic story and a tremendous central performance. Mm, and absolutely. that is really why it's there. Um, it's interesting me because I've I've never seen Citizen Kane. Stand me up against the wall and shoot me if you want. Okay. Um, <laughs> not, not quite so readily, Drew. But so, Drew, well, Drew, sorry, Drew chambering a couple of rounds, even as the words were leaving my my, my I mouth. Need to sound quite so eager. Sorry. No, that's all right. We've known each other long enough. I know you'd like to do. Yes, away we have known each other long enough. Hence, the, I'm sorry. Yes, carry yes. on. No, I I I always hear people talking about Citizen Kane as being a sort of mile marker. Right here is the start. Here's the not the genesis of modern cinema because it's probably been gradual. But here here is the milestone at which we said this this is modern cinema yeah. right in terms of editing in terms of narrative in terms of structure that but it can't it can't have remained in people's popular consciousness just for that right there's got to no, be more that, to it than just the technical aspect I mean, this, it still has to be a good film yeah this is really the only reason I bring it up because as I say it's not a controversial opinion but I do think it is lost in the shuffle exactly how good of a film it is how strong a story it is and how enjoyable it is mm-hmm. because I'm guessing maybe like yourself it's the sort of film where you look at it and think I hadn't watched it for lord knows how long I think it must have been about 28 or something before I first watched it because it has this baggage that says, how can this film possibly be so good? Mm. It's continually yes. number one film uh, in most lists yeah. for these kind of things. And that's what put me off it. And uh, I didn't want to be disappointed by it. But I think the shocking thing is, when I did watch it, lo and behold, I was not disappointed yes. because it's fantastic. Well, and also, what year, um, what year was it released in? 1941. Now? 41. So it's been, it's, been around, it's been around the block. And for me, again, like you say, that thing of approaching it, I've always been put off approaching it because of that baggage and because I fail to believe that, well, a film which is 74 years old still can't be that relevant, that good. Yeah, well, mm. one of the things you seem to say is the baggage it comes with and like it's constantly top of the list and it is because it's a good story. But what you hear, people hear a lot and about how it was groundbreaking, the techniques and things. Yeah. And in that respect, you can see why people wouldn't be impressed with it because one of the most remarkable things about it is that it's yeah. in absolutely no way remarkable. Yeah. Because you look at Citizen Kane and go, well, yeah, that's how you make films. Yeah. But yeah. then you have to put that in context and think, well, yeah, but they didn't before then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they make films now because of that. But um, So you need to know the context for that. But what works without that context is the fact that Charles Foster Kane is a tremendously interesting character. Indeed. Um, it's a really good story. Orson Welles' central performance is absolutely superb. Indeed. And it's just it's just a captivating film with a superb central performance, a really interesting story that's quite timeless, really. Yeah. Um, and then it has the bonus that if you know more about the film, about the context, that it changed cinema. Exactly. Yeah. And as you say, it is a timeless story because it's not that far off Rupert Murdoch's. Oh, I was about to ask like how does it compare to these yeah. kind of things. There's always some media tycoon that's yeah. trying to put the and same even, kind of influence that he does. The question is, is, is it better than Die Another Day? <laughs> um, I would say. Yes, I think is you mean that, tomorrow that, never dies. Tomorrow never <laughs> dies. I do both. <laughs> That's the one I was reaching for. Sorry, Drew. You were saying but even even not the the archetypal character, this media mogul and his empire. Even just on a personal level, so much of it just seems so true, natural, and relatable as a person. Yeah. Um, he's a flawed person. He is controlling. Lots of people know people like that. That it just works as as an interesting character without. Anything else, everything else just magnifies it. Yeah. Yep. No, if you've not seen it, again, for reasons like this where you don't think it can't possibly live at the type, I would just encourage you again, give it a bash. You will not be disappointed by it. 
I'm going to have to watch it. Guess with that, we'll move on to one on Drew's list, which is uh, 12 Angry Men. Yes. In a sweltering New York courthouse, an 18-year-old boy from a slum is on trial for the murder of his father, and the jury are ready to deliver a verdict immediately, without any deliberation. Even the judge seems bored and eager to get things over with, but a lone juror dissents. This man's unwilling to send the boy for execution without at least discussing the merits of the case first. A man playing angel's advocate for the boy's defence. This is a film from 1957 that was powerful then, remains powerful and relevant today because it's an utterly captivating, compelling film which analyses and dissects the minds, motivation and prejudices of the 12 randomly selected citizens who make up the rather nebulous-sounding a jury of your peers. Yeah. And into the hands of these 12 random people is put the life of a teenager. And what makes it interesting and relevant is that the film recognises that these people are just that. They're just people. Yeah. They're charged with an incredibly important task, but they suffer from the same mix of strengths, failings and characteristics as anyone else. So into this group of 12 comes Henry Fonda doing what the defence lawyer failed to do. And with tools of logic, compassion, common sense and reason, he picks holes in... <laughs> Not a lot of people are going to relate to that these days, are they? <laughs> <laughs> And so with these tools, he picks holes in the prosecution argument and patiently works away. And it's just, it's fascinating to watch Henry Fonda challenge other jurors' reasons for voting guilty. And for such a mix of reasons, there are those who have calmly considered and evaluated the evidence is offered, those incapable of, or worse, unwilling to apply much thought. Now you have the successful stockbroker who applies cool logic to his decision, the immigrant who believes in democratic ideal, the prejudiced old man who refers to the boy and others of his ethnicity and background as they and them, proclaiming that they don't know what the truth is. Mm. Then there's the ad man who's more interested in doodling, the despicable salesman who wants to send someone to the electric chair because he's in danger of missing a baseball game, (laughs) and probably most memorably of all, Lee J. Cobb's angry, heartbroken father. And... I think in the film, it's possible to suggest that each juror is a cipher, that each represents one prejudice, one aspect or one failing of the citizenry, but all the jurors feel like full individuals. Each actor is given time and substance to demonstrate that, and everybody feels believable, hmm. that they're a character, that these failings are feelings you see in real people, today, then, in the future most probably. And one of the things that makes this so enjoyable film is the setting which is absolutely key with the exception of very brief scenes in the courtroom a corridor and the jury room's toilet the film is set entirely in the one room the claustrophobic hot crucible of the jury room where tension builds the characters are revealed and in the middle of which is the cam figure of henry fonda's juror number eight i didn't realize it was so constrained in its um setting yeah it's yeah. um and to be honest it could have it could probably be reshot to be entirely in that one room. It could easily be, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, sorry, at this point, I just it's worth chipping just to mention that again. <laughs> yet another film on this list <laughs> of my friend's recommendations that I haven't watched, shamefully. But. Yeah, it's um, apart from perhaps the toilet scenes, which is more just where a couple of people are speaking slightly more privately. Well, you could um, just put a portaloo in the jury uh, <laughs> deliberation yeah, room, couldn't you? The, the, there's an opening scene in the courtroom <laughs> where the, ver- the judge is clearly very bored even he's not interested in justice it's too hot just wants to get it over with (laughs) i'm mildly inconvenienced by this humidity this guy close the day hurry up and hurry up and decide what to do with this teenager but yes it probably could be in the one room um, and for the most part isn't it's it's very intense it's very claustrophobic you feel the heat and the tension in the room and as the time moves on 
the jurors get hotter and sweatier and more tense and tempers flare and everybody's prejudices are revealed. It's just, it's a fascinating character study of, as I said before, the prejudices of these people. Someone who holds the concept of beyond reasonable doubt as sacrosanct, not some flippant word that lawyers say, Mm. that he wants to make sure that these people at least consider everything mm. uh, because it's somebody's life that hangs in the balance. There really, there really is, like, there's nothing more interesting than the spectrum of human experience. Mm. And quite often, just a film in which, like I say, a single location, a bunch of people talking can be the most interesting thing. And yet, at the same time, the very notion of that will put off a huge number of people from even yeah. approaching a film to begin with. Yeah. yeah. 12 Angry Men does it so well. I hadn't watched this until just in preparation for this mm. and it's remarkable how good how how well drawn and how deep those characters are exactly. given that you have 12 of them yeah. um, mm. in this a relatively short film um, yeah, it's it's only just over an hour and a half I think yeah, about that. yeah. Um, and it manages to make all those feel like you know, real believable it's human very, beings very in a way that many deeper well supposedly deeper character studies haven't been able to so yeah it works tremendously well on that yeah. level and you don't even find out much about the characters in it which is what's um, because in so many other films characters are defined by what they do Mm. Until the end, you don't find anybody's name, and it's only two people's there's, names, and it's an irrelevance. There's no cutting away to show what's happening in the home life of this particular juror as he goes no. home for dinner um, that night, or anything that's in there's unfair. There's yeah. a couple cool bits of chit chat where somebody says he's a salesman, somebody owns a garage, somebody's a stockbroker. Yeah, it's not relevant, but the character comes out and what they say, mm. what they do. Yeah, um, that whole thing of inference is one of these things that again, like modern multiplex cinema, is missing entirely. Because often the most satisfying thing is not to have everything handed to you on a plate. Mm, you don't need all of the exposition in the world. It's often far more interesting to work out what's motivating a particular character just from the odd mention of a thing here in relation to something that someone else said. Yeah. And suddenly yeah. the penny drops and you have a clearer picture of that person. So, like you were saying, Craig, it's it's disappointing that the idea of something that's just, just talky puts so mm. many people off because it, I find those sort of films so often to be the most rewarding. Yeah. That Because because we're people, and it's about people, and people are interesting. Yeah, well, mm. absolutely. Well, if you're sitting listening to this podcast, if you're sitting listening <laughs> to three people talking, <laughs> finding it interesting, but at the same time thinking to yourself, 12 people talking, that doesn't sound like my cup of tea. <laughs> you should probably take a step back and consider watching 12 Angry Men. Even just one final masterstroke in the film, too, is that you never find out if the defendant's guilty or not. Oh, really? No, um, which I just think is because it's not really the point of the film. It's not relevant mm. to the film. Mm. You've just got Henry Fonda's juror who he knows that he could be wrong. Yeah. He knows that he could be helping set a guilty person free. But as I said, he, he believes so strongly in this idea that beyond reasonable doubt means something. Yeah. And mm. that you shouldn't just condemn somebody to death because you want to go to a baseball game. Yeah. So you never find out if he's guilty. It's the process of deliberation and the insight into jurors' minds that's, that's mm. the real draw of it. And, and I just find the, it utterly fascinating. And yeah. the young lad's just a catalyst for that. Yeah, I mean, you could easily, well, easily reimagine this in your head as one of the most boring courtroom dramas you could imagine. As it basically runs through the same thing that Henry Fond is doing. But the added element of being able to have human interactions and have emotions and anger and things flare up in a way that you couldn't do if it was a cross-examination by yeah, like, yeah, uh, the lawyers uh, makes it a far more interesting uh, case of not well, perhaps not who done it, but um, did he do it? Yeah. And it works again tremendously well on that level too. For a 1950s film containing all men, there's really rather a lot of emotion there. Yeah, that Not mm. just like in, in anger or anything. 
because Lee J. Cobb in particular, he's a tragic character. Yeah. It's when you find out that there are some hints beforehand that perhaps you would guess, but when you finally find out why he thinks this kid is guilty, yeah, uh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Fair news. I'm going to have to check it out. So from the Department of Tenuous Links, if that is a <laughs> film about people, Craig, Boogie Nights, a film also with people in it. Oh, Boogie Nights. Full disclosure, I'm a sucker for uh, I'm a sucker for the disco era, which is probably probably why I, I was drawn to Boogie Nights in the first place. Actually, on paper, it wasn't the type of film that appealed to me. I wasn't particularly familiar with P.T. Anderson's body of work up until that point. And so it literally was the, the disco era branding of Boogie Nights that drew me in. Um, if you're not familiar with the concept of Boogie Nights, I mean, briefly, ostensibly, it's um, it's a snapshot of the American porn industry during the late 70s through to early 80s when the transition was from film to VHS. Hmm. And that's the framework of this thing. It's a, a long character piece. It's not actually got all that much to do with the mechanics of pornography. Hmm. If you are a thrill seeker, if you're a fan of porn, you're probably going to be disappointed by this film, (laughs) which markets itself as being about the porn industry. Yeah, it's not really about titillation. No, it's not about titillation in any any way, shape or form. In fact, in in a lot of instances, quite the opposite. In relation to the rest of P.T. Anderson's body of work, the reason... I mean, let's be honest, right, everyone here in this room is probably a fan of P.T. Anderson, right? Mm-hmm. Most yeah. most people who, who love cinema will probably point to P.T. Anderson as one of the great modern filmmakers. And I can't think really of a film in his catalogue. If you stuck a pin in his catalogue, you what probably the least significant film he's made probably still ranks as really good. Yeah. Um, yeah this, remember, is a man who got not just the best performance ever from Adam Sandler, mm. but... A, a performance, performance from Adam Sandler. A, a performance from Adam Sandler that would rank against many, many, many other actors. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Against the rest of his body of work, because I can imagine if you ask most people to pick a top 10 list, um, or certainly like a top 20 list, there's going to be a P.T. Anderson film in it. Yeah, um, there's a the, good couple. Oh, you know, God, remain, yeah. yeah. I mean, even on this list, I thought about things like There, there Will Be Blood, for example. Yeah. yeah, but Boogie Nights, by far and away for me, I consider it to be... And, of course, obviously, other people's mileage may vary, but I consider it to be P.T. Anderson's most rounded film. It's got all of the... ah, I've got issues with Magnolia, right? As much as I love it, and I know lots of people love Magnolia. Boogie Nights has got all of the strengths of something like Magnolia and none of its weaknesses. It's got... For such a large cast... Um, it really rounds out a lot of its characters really well. Even even some of the incidental characters, like Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, mm-hmm. by the end of the film, um, it's hard, even though that's someone who's had limited screen time, it's kind of hard not to feel some sort of empathy or relate to that character in some sort of way. Um, you feel like you've been on a journey even with these minor incidental characters um, who are involved in this, this um, porn operation. It's got moments of fantastic humour that arise naturally, from the subject matter, mm-hmm. um, counterpointed by some other moments of intense tragedy. There's none of the sort of self-indulgent navel-gazing that was the baggage that came with Magnolia. As great a film as that was, mm, there, were <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are parts of that that I found a little bit too self-indulgent. Given the subject matter, Boogie Nights is never condescending. It's not a film which says, look at these people running about trying to scrape together aren't their lives pathetic yeah. it's, it's got, not judgmental no, yeah, it's it is, in, it is in no way shape or form judgmental it treats 
all of its characters with respect and humanity. It never condescends. And crucially, it delivers a massive, massive amount of pathos. Everyone's got a predetermined opinion of what they think pornography is Mm -hmm. and the lives of the people involved in it. And this movie is not interested in what your (laughs) preconceptions of that thing are. Essentially, it's actually a film about family. A massively, massively dysfunctional family, but a family nonetheless. And in a lot of ways, actually, it's quite a heartwarming film. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, you watched it recently for the first time, Scott, right? Yeah, it falls in the category of films that I was convinced I had watched. It turns out I hadn't, but what I had seen is the the William H. Macy scene with the big tracking shot, of course, Mm. uh, which I must have seen in isolation somewhere. Boogie Nights is, is... Possibly is P.T. Anderson's lowest key film that I've mm. seen. It is po- probably the, one of his films that is, is the least about anything is that there is. It doesn't seem to take any particular one aspect of the human condition and look at it. It just presents a character piece of these people. And it doesn't really deal with heightened performances either, right? No. It's probably more accessible than something like There Will Be Blood yeah. or The Master, for example. Having only just watched it, I can't speak about it too much, but it, it did mm. not immediately jump into my sort of top P.T. Anderson bracket. I would still pick something like There Will Be Blood, um, maybe even Magnolia, even if it is eight days long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't see past There Will Be Blood because that is just such a remarkable film. But mm. um, certainly P.T. Anderson, as we mentioned earlier, just such a fantastic director. And it, did, it did break my heart not to put one of his films onto my list, but mm. uh, Boogie Nights, uh, it was certainly worth watching and I enjoyed watching it. I'd probably need to let it sink in a bit more to see if it's uh, mm. how well it holds up as a character piece somewhere down the line but certainly yeah. it wasn't it's certainly an enjoyable watch and it's certainly one that does not demand the same level of perhaps patience that you need to show with something like there will be blood which yeah. is a fantastic film but it is somewhat more demanding of a watch than yeah, something like Nights. yeah so yes it's certainly very enjoyable and i very much mm. enjoyed watching it it's not um i don't know i don't know anyone else who would say probably is their favorite pt anderson film for me I think the accessibility of it, I think the humour of it, which yeah. is something that often the humour in, if there is any in P.T. Anderson's films, it can be quite oblique, yes, quite random. There, there is there is a more natural feel to the humour arising from the situation and the characters mm-hmm. in this, rather than being some sort of stylistic choice. The fact, <laughs> Ernst Kudos, again... Much like we discussed with who was it we discussed a minute ago? Adam, Adam Sandler. You're going to mention Marky Mark. I, Marky yeah. Mark. <laughs> he also gets a really fantastic performance out of Mark Wahlberg, which we've never seen since. No, exactly. Likeable as he can be, but nothing like that. Well, no, he said. He, well, he certainly shouldn't have been nominated for The Departed, but um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> let's let's skip over that. I think there's there's as someone again, as I mentioned at the start, someone with a deep deep love of that era and the music and culture of that era. I think personally, for me. There is a, a connection to the film that I don't feel from as much as I I as much as I seesawed between this and there will be blood. Mm-hmm. Ultimately it comes down to just that little personal spark, that particular connection for me myself, and that's why I picked this one for my list. Love it. That sounds very much like it should be leading for another film, which means that it comes back mm. to me, so I'm going to talk about it. Well, also. Scott, I'm sure at <laughs> some point in Boogie Nights, correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to remember didn't someone carry a length of rope at some point? Let me just think about it. Why, yes, they did. Which provides a great lead to my show's film for this one, which is rope. And for those of you who don't know, it's, it's, you perhaps may not know it, because this is a, one of Alfred Hitchcock's least celebrated films, I would say. 
and there is perhaps a bit of um, bloody mindedness on my part of putting this in the list. I did feel I should pick a Hitchcock film for much the same reasons I felt Citizen Kane should be on there because Hitchcock again perhaps not didn't show the inventiveness of a form that uh, Orson Welles did in Citizen Kane, but to be honest, if you look at any thriller these days, basically it's the blueprint that, Ar- that uh, Hitchcock perfected. He was a master of his craft. He absolutely was. So. Um, so if you're going to pick a Hitchcock film, I'm sure a lot of people, if they lean more towards the horror side of things, they'll pick something like Psycho or The Birds, uh, which are personally, personally ones. Mm. I personally go with North say. by Northwest. Exactly, yeah, I was going to say, so. if you want some of the kind of more bombastic ones, maybe Vertigo or North by Northwest, which is such a terrific film, it breaks my heart again not to put it on. I was going to say, it was very close yes. to being in my top five. Yep, mine too. Yeah. So I was, I'm... I'm kind of inherently drawn, however, to some of his more low-key works, which is normally a lead-in to, say, Rear Window, um, which is... Which is fantastic. Again, fantastic film, but I'm going to talk about Rope, which is, if anything, an even smaller-scale venture. It concerns two uh, university-educated, kind of Harvard-educated gents, two young boys, who basically kill one of their classmates as an intellectual exercise to show that they can do it and provide some uh, bizarre philosophical points which are brought up later on in the film. And their grand plan for this master is to kill this fellow, strangling him with the titular rope, and then they stuff his body inside a chest and then, in a kind of ghoulish detail that I'm sure Hitchcock was amazingly happy to put into the (laughs) film, they then proceed to put a cloth over this uh, chest of drawer, chest well, it's large uh, chest, and serve dinner off it for a dinner party, which is uh, <laughs> just about to happen. Which is, you know, it's just a tickling concept. You can tell we'd love that kind of macabre thing. Yeah. Um, this, is, the, this is immediately because again, I've not, I haven't seen Rope. This has immediately gone to the top of my catch-up list for these months. <laughs> it's the very fact too that this was a 1948 film, thing, so yeah. mainstream Hollywood, mm. late 40s. And Hitchcock gets away with a film where somebody is murdered at the very beginning. His body is in the cent- effectively in the centre of the thing all the time. Th- these characters yeah. are doing such ghoulish things and discussing the moral superiority of beings that they're allowed to um, kill people. It's incredibly this is macabre. A mainstream Hollywood film from the 1940s. I don't know how he managed that. Yeah, so there's a lot of elements like that. And there's things like the. Uh, it can't be mentioned because of the time frame, but clearly the two boys that commit this murder are in a relationship with each other. They're clearly homosexual. It's not mentioned explicitly of course because you couldn't do it at that kind of time but it's pretty clear there is there is also supposed to be the same kind of dynamic between their one of their guests at the party which is their teacher played by James Stewart that doesn't really come across so well I think because of James Stewart's inherent uh, straight-laced morality it doesn't really play but that's quite clearly how the the dynamic was supposed to go they had some infatuation with a former teacher and they're playing out his his somewhat unique interpretation of Nietzsche and how they can be viewed as superhumans and uh, put their life amongst the cattle of the normal people I think it's kind of how they're referred to at certain points so it's an interesting thing there's two axes which you're looking at and first is again it's just a brilliant character piece because it does such a brilliant job of introducing two people that you really want to see get caught out because they are just so I mean even their motive for murder is just so inherently nasty that you just (laughs) immediately vile performances from them so it's a a great one for that for central characters in a film Again, possibly even the 1940s, or time of film noir stuff, I guess, but they are the most hideous, heinous, yes. amoral, disgusting people you can imagine, and they're the centre of the film for the entire running time. Yeah, and uh, it's 
beautiful to kind of hope that these people get their comeuppance. Uh, the, the film around it, actually, again, manages to be a very interesting character piece. All the characters that uh, are invited to their little dinner party, which I assume is used as their alibi for the, or was intended to be, uh, they're all fully drawn characters, so perhaps, perhaps a shade over the top, but it all works very well. Um, it provides a, an entertaining mix of people to bounce off each other. So that element of it works very well. Of course, the other thing is Hitchcock, of course, wanting to build tension. He's managing to build tension from the most mundane of occurrences, and this is why I think Rope is so underrated, because basically there's there's almost nothing in here that could possibly be used to build tension, yet Hitchcock manages to do it anyway. Mm. I mean, something as simple as a maid uh, cleaning dishes off the tablecloth of it is now being seen as a, a source of real drama, yeah. uh, which it shouldn't be. And it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just these sort of... Part more than anything else is why it's on the list because it's such a minimal film. It's mm. it's all based in, entirely in this one room. Uh, there's a, a shot of the outside at the start, but everything that happens in the film is done in one room. It's basically shot as a play. It's adapted from a play, and Hitchcock basically shot it as you might shoot a play. Uh, he was basically just running an entire reel and shooting that off. Uh, it's a technique you might see in something like um, Birdman recently, mm. where all the transitions where scenes were loaded are basically you kind of move behind someone's back, and that's used as transition to reset and reload the yeah, film. That um, kind of thing. There's a lot of like, hidden cuts, like because generally it's people's backs. Yeah. Um, some are more obvious than others. Yeah. Um, and people. People do go on about that, about, oh, it's basically, it looks like one big take, and people should never be that impressed by that, because well, people do that in the theatre every single night, thousands yeah, of yeah. times, but it is just so, so well staged and so yeah. well managed that all of this stuff happens, and for the most part, you don't notice the takes, it feels like it's one yeah. long take in one room, and that it runs pretty much in real time. It does run in real time. Yeah, and it is something I do find on a technical level, it's, it's again partly why I like it so much, just because of that. Not necessarily because of that. I mean, it's the sort of thing that would be trivial to do these days because you could do it on a DSLR yeah, and get the same quality. Exactly. Out of it. But bear in mind, this is this was done, I think it was one of, I think it was Hitchcock's first colour film, which it's means it, it was done wise. on one of those massive technicolour cameras, which, if you've seen them, looks like a minivan on a stick. Mm-hmm. And to do that, they've got this very clever set with like movable walls and things like that. The stage hands yeah. are probably more important than anyone else in the whole creation of this film. And just managing to kind of track that through and without it being obvious or seeing any kind of strange blocking. Tremendously well handled on that technical level as well, which gives another level of appreciation to it. But the primary thing of it is just how good a story that is and how much you want to see these people get captured. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it's, it's something I'm going to mention in the film we'll talk about later, but people do get hung up on the technical details sometimes. Yeah. And if you appreciate film craft and you understand how they're made, yes, you can appreciate that. I know it's very well done. Mm. But the point of it, and again with the film I mentioned later, it's that it's so good technically but because it serves the story that's yeah. why it's important not that it's a technical feat but yeah. that it allows the story to play out in the way it does and with such tension yeah. and fluidity I, mean, it, 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 I think more than anything else it shows off how clearly uh, Hitchcock was uh, his technical competence in basically all manner of filmmaking mm-hmm. from the shooting to the directing all that stuff he, was, he knew what he was doing and he knew what basically everyone that he was under was under his Aegis was going to be doing. So that is one reason to like it, but it's not the primary one. The primary one is just the characters are so well drawn and so likably hateful, if that is a, a term we can use. So yeah, so that's that's really why I like it. Again, you could put any one of Hitchcock's films on this list, more or less, and, but I think this one is the underrated one, so that's why I'm imploring you to give it a chance if you haven't done already. It's only 80 minutes long, if memory serves. It's not going to take you too long to batter through, and I think it's well worth a look. Yeah, uh, it's, it's tense from start to finish. This is one that 
I was absolutely certain I'd seen. Yeah. Which I must have seen Rob. I've seen so many Hitchcocks. I've seen this. And I didn't. So I watched it last week in preparation for this, knowing that you'd come and it's like, oh, yes. Yes, I can see. It wouldn't be my favourite Hitchcock. Probably not even close. But I can see why you put this in here because it's a technical masterpiece. Yeah. Hitchcock was the master of suspense. He was a master of his craft. And the tension throughout just it builds and builds and builds. Mm. And it, yeah, just an incredible film. Yeah, again, I just really wanted to have a Hitchcock film there because he is so influential and everything you see today is so influenced by it. Certainly any thriller you see today is so influenced by it. Things like, I mean, even Christopher Nolan stuff when he's not building ridiculous sets and like entirely rotatable rooms or something like that. Uh, the actual drama of his performance is pure Hitchcock. Um, something like Memento, I think Hitchcock would be absolutely thrilled to direct it. Mm. That's exactly that sort of thing. So yep, uh, equally relevant to modern cinema as he was back in his day. Right. So I guess we can move on from Rope to another clearly recognised classic in the field, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, so Lawrence of Arabia, um, specifically the restoration uh, thereof. If we started the podcast by mentioning that for the majority of these films, their position, they're in no particular order here. Um, Lawrence of, of Arabia is the only one that I'm intractable of, uh, on rather. It is, for me, the greatest films ever. I would actually concur with that. that yeah, none the, of mine were in order that I could have picked anything from 15 to 20 films easily apart from Lawrence Arabia. I think it's just magnificent. Yeah. It's not um it's not even something I I will I will do. <laughs> it's not even something I will debate. Um uh, <laughs> you'll just no, be told, I mean, listen up. Yes, clearly on the grounds of it being personal opinion, but I think even anyone who appreciates cinema, you can you can not enjoy a film but still appreciate it as a piece of filmmaking and Lawrence of Arabia is such a clear cut case of here is one of the most perfect pieces of cinema that's ever been put together that even if it wasn't going to be in your top 10 which I'd be amazed if anyone had seen it um, wouldn't put it in like the top 10 movies of all time there is surely no way you can argue against it as being the, one of the most perfect pieces of cinema married um, or sorry technically married with some of the best performances um, well look I'll go through I, I've made extensive notes on it right T.E. Lawrence in and of himself is possibly one of the most fascinating characters of recent history if not history in, in and of itself certainly as far as this film's concerned um, I would argue he's the greatest character to have ever graced a cinema screen conveyed by incidentally one of the best performances I've ever seen if not the best performance I've ever seen in, yeah, in the form um, of Peter O'Toole again it's always difficult to say the best there are so many performances of course it's totally objective but, but it's arguable I think that's the thing that it's arguable that Peter O'Toole in Lawrence Arabia yeah. is possibly the best ever so you, it'd be hard the, to argue yeah. against the, it. The way I would argue, yeah, is that it's probably not. You, you probably can't argue for that as a definite thing, but it's very difficult to argue against because you could probably point to other performances that are as good as, but I honestly don't believe there's one that's better. Yeah, so I'd say you yeah. probably pick a lot that are very, very good, and you'd never mm. say one is better. You couldn't. And, no. And why would you need to? Because it's got time to watch more than one film. But uh, exactly. Yes, you can, exactly, you couldn't find anything better. So much of the guys, well, Lawrence's, T. Lawrence's is not Peter O'Toole. So much of um, T. Lawrence's life and exploits are known, and yet so many of them still remain shrouded in mystery that if if you, I mean, hell, I would imagine take a look at the guys, you know, take a look at the Wikipedia page. It's probably yeah. more interesting than most, than most <laughs> novels you'll ever read. Um, 
Yeah, so you have this you have this character um about whom the 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 exploits and the things we know about his character are fascinating enough. The things that we don't know or that there's speculation about are equally as fascinating. Um on top of which as if as if he weren't compelling enough during the world war during the first world war um his exploits were sensationalized by largely by the american press mm-hmm. um and then after the war um chiefly chiefly by himself <laughs> when he wrote the seven pillars of wisdom which again is one of the most compelling books i've ever read in my life so obviously this is this this guy offers such a broad broad canvas as a character that if you want to do his entire character justice, you're going to need a 20-part television series, right? So, nothing... Basically, David Lean approaches this film and here's a narrow slice of this guy's life. Nothing is considered of Lawrence's earlier life. Um, there's no setup. There's no mention of the early years of his no life. No origin story. There is no origin story. Um that's the only way we can hope to have some understanding of this guy is to say, okay, let's take just a cross section. Um, and even at that, this movie clocks in over three and a half hours and you are still left wanting more. Um, a list of, I made a list of just, here's all the things that blow me away about this film. A list of astonishing, th- uh, astonishing things. The assuredness of Lean's direction. Three and a half hours, I'm not going to rush. Hmm. Sit down, shut up. <laughs> I know what I've got to do. I'll give you a bloody intermission. just sit and pay attention I'm I'm going to compel you to watch the screen for the next three and a half hours and honestly there are very few films that I would entertain going to the cinema to see with that kind of running time and I wouldn't think it's going to be a bit of a drag though it is the only film of that extreme length that honestly I cannot think of a single I cannot think of a single second that you could trim from that film that isn't doing something to drive to drive plot or the character of Lawrence the whole thing is a learning curve Um, the cinematography of Freddie Young right the barren desert landscape has never looked more vibrant welcoming and yet at the same time treacherous and terrifying frankly absolutely terrifying absolutely beautiful there is <laughs> again here we go this is my limited opinion there is no such thing as quote better cinematography you could argue that other films are possibly as well shot mm-hmm. as Lawrence of Arabia there is not I will not entertain anyone telling me there is a film that is shot better than Lawrence of Arabia um, including even from Young himself when he went on to do I think uh, Dr. Zhivago, mm-hmm. right? Another stunning, stunning film. You could argue that you like it as much as I certainly wouldn't argue anything other, but it's not better than Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. Um, the editing. Anne Coates, who I didn't actually realise until I, I checked um, last week. I was, I was like, yeah, I better, I better actually... One of the things I hadn't really paid that much attention to, editors never get a look in. You never hear anybody talking about how fantastic the editing of a film is. And even after, even the, the many, many times I've watched this film, I've never actually bothered to read all that much about Anne Coates, <laughs> who, who has gone on to herself become... And this was fairly early in her career, actually, that she shot Lawrence of Arabia. She's still with us. She's still editing. Um, she has got the most fantastically varied resume in film editing, ranging from this and films of the same period, such as Beckett, through to uh, Raw Deal. <laughs> that, Which, yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, that's quite a juxtaposition of films. Raw Deal, and just within the last few months, Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, 
Anne Coates has got. The, I, if Anne Coates doesn't have a, a biography, um, I'm going to be the one to write it. <laughs> I want to know more about Anne Coates. The editing is absolutely phenomenal. To have a film of that length, would say that you do not, you cannot really argue to lose a second of that film. It is absolutely perfect. The score, the word iconic is used probably bandied about far too often. It's not here. Absolutely iconic score. Drew, you and I were fortunate enough that we went to see the Glasgow um, Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh, Royal Scottish National Orchestra. The Scottish National Orchestra, sorry, um, playing, um, oh, sorry, performing um, hits from films. And honestly, to sit there and hear the score of this film being played in a room live by an orchestra was so moving. I, it was absolutely. It was, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, Hair standing did, up in the back of your neck. Absolutely. Did I mention the cinematography? <laughs> um, universal, no, go on. <laughs> no, universally astonishing performances. Um, Alec Guinness's prosthetic nose, notwithstanding. Um, actually, Alec Guinness is probably the weakest link, if there is such a thing in this film. Um, Omar Sharif and Anthony Quinn fucking dominate. Mm. This is a this is a film in which um, well they're not incidental characters but secondary players are absolutely and legends of cinema are firing on all cylinders at all times yes. in accompaniment to Pete O'Toole's unbelievable performance in the central role. Um, again, there's there is Alec Guinness. I still have a little problem with Alec Guinness in this film. Um, he sounds a little bit too much like Obi Wan Kenobi. Uh, Weird that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Hmm. No, there's, it's a sort of generic Alec Guinness performance, but it's still Which, better than most other people's performances. And also, I think, explainable because he had had such a good relationship with mm. David Lean. He'd been the star of Oliver Absolutely. Twist. And Absolutely. then he seemed to suddenly fall out somehow. And after The Bridge in the River Kwai, mm-hmm. he was the star of that too, superb. And I think while he wanted a, he wanted a bigger role in that film mm. uh, and I think whether it's bitterness or being less motivated or something there because he yeah. gradually worked with lean less and less tiny role in A Passage to India yeah. uh, so I think maybe there's something to which is a disappointment but again he's still excellent compared to most people absolutely but yeah you get the impression that the seed of something and and the demise of their working relationship was perhaps planted around this time but again it's still a performance it's still an excellent performance it's just it's probably made to look that much less significant in the context of O'Toole, Quinn, Sharif. Um, un- unbelievable. Best of all, Peter O'Toole's performance, for my money, as we've already covered, the best performance ever committed to screen. Crucially, there's a point just before the intermission, probably about two-thirds of the way into the running time, where Lawrence is recounting to uh, General Allenby um, the execution he carried out against Gassim, the guy that he'd gone back uh, and risked his own life to rescue when they were crossing the uh, the, sun, the stretch of desert known as the Sun's Anvil. Um, and Tool's omission, uh, sorry, Tool's <laughs> omission, Tool's admission here, which is in stark contrast to his earlier ethos, uh, which is well quoted of um, simply uh, not minding that it hurts. Uh, and Jack Hawkins' reaction as um, as General Allenby to it do more for character development in a few short lines than most other movies accomplish of their lead characters in a running time of two hours. Unbelievable. A really, not just a pivotal scene in, the, in that particular movie, but one of, one of the best character developing scenes um, I think I've ever witnessed in cinema. Uh, did I mention the cinematography? <laughs> 
Weaknesses, believe it or not, there are some. It's not going to pass the Bechdel test anytime soon. This is this is definitely this is definitely a a about first. men. <laughs> yes, I can't think of a single female. I can't even not even just a, a significant female character. I'm struggling to think of a female character. Yeah, there's possibly an extra at some point. There's possibly the, an extra one, but there is literally perhaps, um, some of the shots in England. Um, there might be some women on the steps. Yes, <laughs> and unfortunately, as with films of that period, um, set in that sort of locale. Um, there is some horrid blacking up of white actors. If yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that, that is really the only blemish in this film's copybook for me is that the strange insistence that well we need some we need an Arabian let's get Alec Guinness and we're lovely to think that this sort of thing's gone away but it's yeah. not. No. You know, but leading to last year where you think we need an Egyptian. I know Christian Bale and Spud off train spotting that'll do. Yeah, and it's just not acceptable <laughs> then. It's not acceptable now. <laughs> other other actors of that region are available. Um, but you know very much of its time I'm not you know it, it, it is what it is um, if you can see past that and hopefully you can um, it can be forgiven that transgression you know it would benefit from a remake Jai Courtney is <laughs> Jai Courtney is Lawrence and I envisage Chris Tucker as Sherry Foley Dennis um, Quaid in there to keep the charisma factor up Dennis Quaid just to pump up just to amp up the charisma <laughs> even more um, but listen any weaknesses um any any weaknesses, that's fine. They can be excused because, yeah, uh, yeah mm. my opinion's bigger than Jesus, and I forgive them. Uh, <laughs> so. I think um, Galadis is also my favourite film, and Craig and I could have come to blows about which one of us got to cover <laughs> this uh, during this podcast. But Craig, you mentioned the word iconic being overused, and this film also makes me another think of another word which which has so little meaning nowadays because it's so obvious and I hate it, which is epic. Epic. But this film is epic. If you want. To understand what a film epic is, this is it. Lawrence of Arabia is epic. The scope, the the scenery, the cinematography, the acting, the scale, the mm. score, those are all epic. This is a film epic, and it's so sad that such a word means so little nowadays because mm. this this embodies it in so many ways. But it manages to be epic. It manages to be epic, but also in the context of character, which is it is wise that have taken this cross section of Lawrence's life where his involvement as in the the british forces as a as a liaison yes. during the during the arab uprising um sorry the arab revolt um is is probably the most obviously um cinematically um you know it has the most cinematic potential of any yes. particular section of his life although i'm sure there are int- intriguing movies to be made about every every waking minute of this man's <laughs> life and probably the time he spent asleep as well um <laughs> So a lot of it, it's, it's, in a sense, it almost feels like it was like, yep, let's pick the low-hanging fruit. But where the impressive part of it is, is against this background of everything that was happening during the Arab Revolt, the war, that unbelievable backdrop in terms of the desert and the train and all that that offers, still manages to keep it, keeps that in focus and, that, and makes that incredibly compelling. But it is never, it is never bigger than... Lawrence himself mm. it's always about the character of Lawrence and his and his uh, his journey in yeah. character it's quite a trick to pull off to be both epic yet intensely personal <laughs> yeah absolutely and to me that's what's epic about it there's epic in terms of Dr Zhivago as an epic film an epic love story um, Ben-Hur as an epic film uh, I would argue you could trim a, an hour off that um, that's epic in another way <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia is epic in scope, in scale, in terms of narrative, 
in terms of setting, in terms of character. And it's the last bit that's the most important. Yep. You could have made a really lazy film about T.E. Lawrence, and this is not a lazy film. Um, it's not just a case of picking the low-hanging fruit. But there you go, that's my 10 pence worth on Lawrence. Yeah, I'm not going to add anything to that, but it's a masterpiece, isn't it? That's really all there is to it. I mean, I was... I was thinking about putting this into a list that was either this or Commando. Couldn't quite decide on the merits which one was better, but you know, it's a, well, of course, it's a classic. The, the point of this podcast isn't the best films, and some of them I think that we cover are. Yeah. It's not best; it's favourite. Well, yes. those aren't the same things. But when it's favourite and best, that's a nice, uh, yeah. nice conjunction. Isn't it terrific? Yeah. Remember William Potter? How I told you the trick was not minding that it hurts. <laughs> that's right, Lawrence. You did. I lied. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Let's ditch the tenuous links, shall we? Yeah, yeah. We'll, let's not bother with tenuous links. There was another film that we liked. Yes, um, I, on my list, I've put Ghost in the Shell, which I was actually reviewed for our old website one day. I only gave it four out of five, so naughty old me, because uh, it's clearly not correct. Uh, you monster! Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So there's a, you sit here and lie before us. <laughs> there's a couple of reasons why it's on here. Um, Firstly, I don't watch anything like as much anime as I used to, but certainly it was a, a big influence on my earlier film-going uh, habits. Uh, and I think there's still an attitude amongst people who will dismiss this because it is a cartoon, as we will do with all anime, and I think that is, of course, nonsense. So that's something to, 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 to was reel against. Uh, because what you get with Ghost in the Shell is one of the more complex and layered bits of film, mm. despite the fact it's not really going out of its way to bludgeon you over the head with a lot of things. Uh, so part of me wanted to put this on just for, because of my love of anime, and part of me wants to put it on because of my love of science fiction as well. Uh, the central concept of Ghost in the Shell is based around a uh, society that is set in the, the near future. It's, I think, based in Hong Kong. Uh, you've got a, a scenario where... Uh, people are being able to cybernetically augment their bodies to the point where they might actually be completely completely augmented in that kind of Robocop kind of way. There is a crisis caused by the sudden uh, appearance on the scene of a what is assumed to be an elite hacker going by the name of the Puppet Master, who, thanks to this new world of interconnectedness, is now able to hack directly inside people's minds because they're so high, high uh, cybernetically augmented and kind of control them in that way. Um, it later on turns out that to take a bit of a twist in that and it goes into realms talking about artificial intelligence uh, it talks about a whole lot of uh, very deep science fiction concepts it's also talking about identity sexual identity just, just self identity in general at the same time as also providing a pretty good procedural as the heroes of the piece are trying to track down the cinema and also providing a number of beautifully shot action sequences as part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, one of the first uh, animes to start using uh, CG along with its cell shading, but it's not going over the top of it. I'm thinking a lot of places you would not, you would struggle to see where there is any computer graphics used in the, mm-hmm. in the scene. It's more for kind of background ambience and things like that. It does a fantastic job of just looking beautiful. It's clearly influenced by things like Blade Runner. It 
but at the same time, again, it's another film that's proved to be very influential in itself. I mean, certainly mm-hmm. it was, it's a time-worn trope that if you, you don't do this film, you don't get The Matrix. Uh, but clearly, it's a lot, Bukowski's lifted quite a lot from this. <laughs> and it's still... Control-C, Control-V, <laughs> yeah. through Google Translate. Yeah. Of all the science fiction stuff you'll see, I think you can see echoes of it through Ghost in the Shell. It's just a fantastic... They've done a bit of investigation of treatise on... More or less philosophy. There's points where it does kind of come to a stop and people just start talking about what the implications of these things are for humanity. You could argue maybe it should be in a framed a slightly different way that way to kind of have it a bit less stop-start. But I think that's forgivable because it manages to introduce so many concepts that are worth thinking about in a very short running time. Um, I think this... I don't think this even struggles its way to 90 minutes. I'm sure it's 80-something minutes. It's like 82 minutes. Yeah, and so it's just a tremendously dense. There's so much in there you can sit and unpack if you care to do so. If you don't care to do so, you still get a very good film with an interesting sort of through line and some really great action sequences, and it looks beautiful, and certainly the Japanese performances are rather good as well. I can't remember off the top of my head how good the dub is, uh, but uh, I'm more of a purist that way anyway. Uh, so <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, so Pure snob, some people would call yeah. it. They'd be wrong, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, a lovely example of a film that is sort of brilliant in itself on a superficial level, but if you care to do a little bit more of a deep delve, you can un, uh, unpeel this onion and get a lot of uh, lovely things hidden underneath the surface of it. Will it make you cry like an onion? Probably not. Hmm. No, it also doesn't taste so good in stews and casseroles. Okay, okay. Uh, but nonetheless, so you're going, you're going with the, the lazy layered onion analogy, then, Scott. You're not going any deeper than that, no. No, was that why you gave it four out of five originally yeah, on the website? It, it, was, okay. it was insufficiently like an onion for it me was to a, give it a <laughs> full five out of five. Insufficiently <laughs> analogous to an onion. <laughs> <It is. laughs> I think what's interesting about it is one of the earlier anime titles to reach the UK at the spearhead of what was very much then kind of like a fringe cult, right? For those of us who were buying stuff like this on VHS and whatnot. And yet it still remains like kind of right up there at the peak of of what anime has achieved. And like, I know it's it's been expanded on greatly with standalone complex and whatnot, which is a a thing in its own right and which I've, I've never actually indulged in. But as a, as a piece of anime, I mean, it's arguably more perfectly formed and, cinematic maybe it's more compelling for me than something even like akira yeah again it's that thing of like it's got very little very little fat and it's interesting because i made a note myself about the the sort of dead it owes to blade runner which yeah which is which is on my my list to talk about but it's crucially it's not plagiarizing blade runner at any point it's very much done that thing where and it's probably it's but probably unusual of, I don't know, I might be talking shit, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my recollection at the time was that a lot of anime coming out at that point was very much centric around Japanese culture, and it was one of those few titles that seemed to, Masamune Shiro seemed to mm. want to take yeah. a few cues from Western cinema yeah. and integrate that back in. And I feel like he reached out to Blade Runners as an influence there, but he most definitely took that, made it entirely its own thing, um, and... Uh, you know, it, it was a minor debt to Blade Runner, but but in maybe in theme and, and yeah. some visual context alone. But otherwise, it is entirely its own thing, and quite rightfully stands, as you pointed out, as this thing which has then gone on to influence cinema in and of yeah. itself. I like this film a lot, but it's just so many years since I've seen it, I cannot mm. 
talk with authority about it just <laughs> the only uh, other thing I feel like I should mention uh, before we move on uh, the score I know we talked about it a bit in Lawrence Valabia but Kenji Kawai's got this mm. bizarre central motive running through it this uh, strange orchestral mm-hmm. invented Japanese language thing going for it which is I would argue is iconic and it's such a, a beautiful counterpoint to so many things on it it's so ethereal and strange and otherworldly that uh, manages to fit in very well with the concepts of the piece so yeah, it was just so influential in terms of style and substance, along with films like Akira, it defined for those who could be bothered to see past the violent Japanese cartoon tag yeah. that anime was actually offering a lot more than just that. Yeah. Certainly that there was plenty of that in the market, and amongst mm-hmm. that first wave of titles that we received in the West, yeah. a lot of it was just that stuff because I mean, you know, Western wicked, audiences like tentacle rape. Yeah. Yes. Wicked <laughs> City and Urusoka Doji, this is yeah. not. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's not one of those disposable pieces of first wave stuff that came to fill no. up the video shelves and make a quick buck. So very mature work, I feel. It certainly it's is, a, and wonderfully atmospheric. It puts yeah. in a way that that sees it stand shoulder to shoulder with any live action film exactly. that you can't yeah. mention, including the likes of Blade Runner. Um, Masamu Nishiro's basically a god. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can't argue against your inclusion in the list. Fair enough. Well, I guess the next film on the list, almost intentionally, some might say, leads on rather nicely. I'm next up with one of my choices, which is uh, leading on from uh, Scott's choice of Ghost in the Shell, I am going to put forward Blade Runner a seminal work of sci-fi and I would argue filmmaking in general. There's a weird thing where if you get into the works of Philip K. Dick, you feel obliged to read Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. The reason is not because it's one of Dick's better works, arguably Mm. it isn't, but because everyone knows it's that book what Blade Runner is based on, Mm. which it is only in the most minor of contexts, uh, basically. Basically, you have character set in the near future. The book was set after an apocalypse, a nuclear apocalypse. There's no mention of that in the film specifically. But the film is set in a near future where artificial intelligence and um, the construction of androids is at a point where robots are very difficult to distinguish from humans. And this poses all sorts of questions. These uh, robots have specific functions. Some are built for work on the off-world colonies. Some are built as um, sex models to uh, to service the workers of the off-world colonies. Uh, however, they all uh, they all have built in a, a finite lifespan, and when these robots become problematic and decide that they'd actually like to live a bit, little bit longer, it falls under the jurisdiction of police officers known as Blade Runners, who inverted commas retire retire the uh, the androids in question uh, mostly by shooting them in the face or anywhere else that'll do the trick. Ridley Scott's Blade Runner is one of those happy instances where I feel completely, completely happy dealing with anyone who tries to tell me the book was better than the film <laughs> by holding a seance, channeling the spirit of Patrick Swayze, putting on a <laughs> pair of mom jeans and backward roundhouse spinning kick them in the face. Um, sometimes People have accused. Sometimes people have accused the film of being a blatant case of style over substance. I've heard oh. that argument many, many times, and those people would be wrong. They're probably just jealous that Blade Runner has more style than most other movies combined, uh, probably including whatever their favourite film is. Not that we're being judgmental. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not that I'm going off on one. Uh, <laughs> coupled with a, a deep philosophical theme, which is the part of the source novel that it does actually draw most heavily from which is what is it that makes us human? Why is it that a human life is held in more esteem than an artificial intelligence? Why is one deemed to be disposable while the other is um, 
uh, intractably um, sacred. So a theme which Dick dealt with in the vast majority of his works, but here probably most arguably translated most successfully to film than any of the other attempts that have been made. I can see why people make the argument that Blade Runner is style over substance, because it has got the most ridiculously complete, or is the most ridiculously complete case of world building I think I've ever seen in a sci-fi film, to the point where it has become the archetypal future apocalyptic sci-fi film. Yeah. Um, no film made after. I think the first attempt to even try and deviate significantly from the aesthetic of Blade Runner in terms of the overcrowded, overpopulated future world uh, scenario that's posited by so many sci-fi films was probably The Fifth Element, um, which seemed constructed entirely as an exercise in, oh, everything doesn't have to be like Blade Runner, let's just (laughs) be the absolute opposite of it in every respect that we can, and, well, I suppose opinions may differ as to how successful it was. As a world-building exercise, it's absolutely fascinating, I would argue flawless. Atmospherically, also a flawless film. I can't think of any other circumstance in which I would say <laughs> I've enjoyed the works of Vangelis. <laughs> um, they have Vangelis has actually found a contextual home for his sonic noodlings here that feels entirely, <laughs> entirely, entirely in place and in time and services the atmosphere of the film yeah. absolutely perfectly in a way that few other film scores um, that I can think of have. Never mind a film score by an artist who I, I would never go within a million miles of under any other circumstance. Performances throughout are largely remarkable. I personally don't think Harrison Ford has been better in anything. Um, I know people will argue that Han Solo is, well, I wouldn't argue a more complete character than Rick Deckard, um, but I think Rick Deckard is arguably Ford's best performance. Sean Young is wonderfully vulnerable. And mm-hmm. what I think um, correct in saying was her first major role, and certainly long before she had the opportunity to go round the bend and you know openly <laughs> start to question why she hasn't been asked to take part in any sequel. Uh, I wonder why that <laughs> is. It's because you're a lunatic, love. Um, Rutger Hauer, much like Vangelis in his score, suddenly finds himself in a movie <laughs> where his pretentious method fits like a glove <laughs> and where he doesn't actually seem out of place as the uh, chief antagonist, Roy Batty, the leader of this disparate group of replicants who are evading the uh, the clutches of the Blade Runner in an attempt to gain a longer life yeah. because they want to live. Also, it's one of those films which ha- it's a highly unusual case of a very well-documented, tortuous production mm-hmm. that seems to have tra- uh, transcended its pitfalls to actually emerge as something wonderful. So often we hear of these great concepts and then a film is delivered, which is a, you know just a, a raw turd of a piece of cinema. <laughs> oh, well, it had a really tortured development history. and you know, somehow, somehow, despite everything, and I, I won't go into any detail on that for reasons I'll mention in a moment, but somehow Ridley Scott managed to transcend all of that. And now, especially now that the final cut is available, the restoration, the 4K restoration and the completion of the, the final cut version of the film has created this wonderfully complete, I would argue, possibly the best science, well, obviously it's the only science fiction film on my list, so clearly <laughs> I'm arguing yeah. for it being my favourite science fiction film. Um, somehow transcended all of that trouble with the production to produce this really beautiful, complete film, which, again, well documented the, the various versions of the film that existed 
studio interference in the early period meant that when this thing hit the cinemas, there was a woeful, woeful um, voiceover. Voiceover. Uh, voiceover from Harrison's Ford character running intermittently throughout the film. All sorts of editing choices. Uh, a butchered ending, which was just ridiculous, that used leftover footage from the, the opening of The Shining. Um, <laughs> just a really bizarre history. But this film, which from the point which has been released over the intervening three decades, has finally coalesced into what it sh- should always have been in the first place. And George Lucas take note, if you're going to go back and retrofit a film, mm-hmm. this is probably the way to do it. That's my argument for, for Blade Runner anyway. I don't know. Drew, you weren't so keen on it, right? It's weird. I've got a strange history with Blade Runner. First watched it a very, very long time ago, and I didn't like it. And I didn't like it for a very long time. But and I've never quite put my finger on why, but I kept watching it. Probably because yeah. I didn't shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible, but there must have been something in there, something that was registering with me, perhaps on a subconscious level, but I didn't like Blade Runner. I'm going to watch Blade Runner again. Yeah. I don't like this film. Maybe I'll watch it again. Uh, and then, whether something just changed or whatever my subconscious was, just managed to finally batter down the door. I watched it probably around about the time of the final cut and was like, oh, all right. Yeah. Yes, this. This is good. I like this. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Um, why that took so long, I don't know. Why I kept trying, I don't know. But it, it's wonderful. It, it's quite incredibly moody, which is one of my favourite things about it. Oh, definitely. The yeah. feeling, the mood of the piece, which is produced by everything. It's the lighting, it's the editing, it's the scene composition, but and the acting and the dialogue. It, it's one of the most atmospheric films I've ever seen. It, yeah. it was the first. It was pretty much the first time on film that someone said, "You know what? The future's probably going to be really shit." Yes. <laughs> the, the dystopian nature of it is quite appealing. Um, mm. Well, not. Appealing that I don't want to be in this dystopian future, but as a as an aesthetic, but in a way appealing. I do because it's so depressing, and so atmospheric, and so appealing in like a noir sense. It draws a lot of um, influence from like thirties and forties noir, you know, and that sort of the yeah. the, the seamy streets, the you know steam rising from the manhole covers, yeah. and 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 some of it too, possibly the fact that all three of us grew up um, within sight of one of the major mm. influences in terms of the aesthetic of the future, which was. Grange Mouth Oil Refinery, mm. that perhaps appealed to me too, being familiar with that. But I'm just going to repeat myself. It's the mood. When the story's interesting, the characters are interesting, and despite Ridley Scott's own best attempts to ruin it for people, um, <laughs> the fact that it's left open-ended, yeah. even though he's decided that there's a canonical ending, so Ridley, shut your face, please. <laughs> um, back in your box. It's a film that stays in your mind. Yeah, it is. It's, it's mm. never a film that I've watched or appreciated particularly on really a narrative level, which is interesting mm-hmm. enough, but I mean, it seems in many ways to be the least of the film. I, I just like watching it as this wonderfully complete mood piece. Yeah, um, I think that, that's visually really how it works. Mood yeah. piece, actually quite a few of my films that I was at least some that I picked and some that I was considering for this, the narrative was less important than the mood, which is weird because I really like narrative. I care for it a lot. Mm-hmm. But I think perhaps one of the things that clicked with Blade Runner was that I put aside the need for narrative and started to be able to yeah. more appreciate just mood and yeah. Blade Runner does mood better than the, most films. The, the theme almost takes the place of narrative. Mm. The theme at the surface is seems overly simplistic perhaps, but the more you want to dig into it, the more of a fundamentally intriguing sort of premise it is. What is it that makes it? And again, like say, like Dick dealt with it in like 50% of his works. It was his yeah. 
his big central theme was what is it that defines us as being human yeah, um, exactly. other works like the Total Recall we can remember it for you wholesale the short story that was based on is like well if if you can falsify a memory um, yeah. and implant it on someone what is it that makes that you know is the person the memory is the person yeah. the experience if you could supplant someone's memory with something else what does that say about what it means to be that person yeah. people can't people I feel like a lot of people can't remove themselves from the visuals because it is so visually outstanding. And to think as well, this was like, this is in the pre-CG era. There's no CG, apart from in the final cut, there's been some use um, of computer graphic to, re- to replace a couple of, um, in a notable scenes, it's used, to, it's not even been used to augment, it's been used to replace certain elements um, that were unsatisfactory in, in the, the first print of the film. But where was it going with this? Can't remember. Yeah, people can't detract themselves from that. It's remarkable to think that this was entirely done in model work. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And all of the effects are optical. All of those cityscapes are multiple layers of film being passed, you know, multiple passes on film yeah. with motion control and arguably doing, building upon the sort of motion control effects that had been accomplished and pioneered in like the Star Wars yeah. movies and just cranking them up to 11. And still to this day, even if, if you watch the original cut of it, even apart from the odd little bit of fringes around the matte lines and things like that, honestly. It still looks outstanding because it was all practical, it was all optical, it was model work, and it hasn't aged as badly as those films of the last couple of decades where CG started early to CGI. take prevalence. Yeah, early CGI feels like early 3D video games. It yeah. ages very badly. Yeah. yeah, this does not look like a film that was shot in a sci-fi film from the 1980s. It could have been shot a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's quite unusual too in that when we're past now the point where Blade Runner was set, or mm. pretty yeah. close to aren't we? exactly the year it hasn't failed in the way that so many things do it's like oh this is what the future's going to look and find cars and stuff in it whereas like you know 10 years later like the most ridiculous looking things yeah you get like yeah. some star trek from the 70s or something and it just looks impossibly ridiculous now but yeah. if you look at blade runner because none of it looks that different from nowadays but it's still yeah that, i can believe that's the future it doesn't mm-hmm. look that different there's enough Slight tweaks to make you think. Okay, yeah, it's clearly I mean, not everything's now. not made of glass and titanium. No, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's grungy. Yeah, uh, whole cityscapes haven't suddenly been replaced by sort of arbitrary sort of you know like oh we've decided you know buildings are all made of crystal now. Yeah, <laughs> what happened to the old cities? <laughs> no, every, everything's 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 now but built upon and made miserable. Yeah, so it's <laughs> it's managed to pull off quite an incredible trick of looking relevant, still looking like a future. Not that it's already dated. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I just think the visual legacy of this film is cast in stone. The work Sid Mead did as the pretentiously titled visual futurist um, <laughs> is an absolute landmark. I would argue it's possibly, I know we spoke about the cinematography mm-hmm. in uh, Lawrence of Arabia earlier, but I would argue that pound for pound, this is the best looking film that's ever been made. That's part of it. The, the sumptuousness of that is what initially drew me in, but I kept coming back to it, back to it, and realising that there was more to it. And I actually think that if you only watch this film once or twice, then it's probably understandable that you might think it's just, yeah, style over substance, I get it. I think if those people if those people watched it another couple of times, um, they would start to realise that it is a, it's a more interesting film than that. Yeah. And also, yes, what I was going to say earlier, sorry, just quickly about production. The reason I'm not going to go into depth in production is because one of the best books you will ever read about not just about Blade Runner, even if you have no interest in Blade Runner, if you just want to find out what the filmmaking process is about from start to finish. Future Noir. Future Noir by Paul M. Salmon is one of the best books ever written on the topic of filmmaking, bar none. Uh, and it details the whole production history of this film from start to finish 
in massive, massive detail, but in a way that even if you're not particularly interested in this film, will still engage you and offers a fascinating insight into how this sort of thing gets made. There you go. One of the best books mm-hmm. on film ever, from one of the best films based on a book ever. <laughs> but there you go. Okay, we have come to the realisation that because we enjoy talking about our favourite films quite so much that this is going to be longer than we'd originally anticipated. So we're in fact going to split this into two podcasts. We'll stop this here, we'll give your ears a break, and we hope you'll return shortly for our next episode, which will conclude our favourite films and a discussion of them, and we'll mark the launch of Hudson Film. For now, goodbye.